Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is on Melt Festival. Big festivals often struggle to create an authentic atmosphere, but Germany's Melt does it with ease. In the last 20 years, they've booked some of the biggest names in music, but they've always been ahead of the curve when it comes to club culture, often spotting rising talent years before they become staples on the circuit. I recently spoke with Melt's booker, Stefan Lehmkohl, about the challenges of remaining a leading name in the festival calendar and how the events landscape has evolved over the last two decades. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange on Melt Festival is up next. Festival's been running for 20 years now, and I think it's probably safe to say that's one of Europe's favorites. And it gets a pretty solid crossover between people who are into electronic music and then people who are coming at it from more larger artists, and it provides this kind of like crossing over point for these worlds somewhat. It started from pretty humble origins with um, some open airs outside of Berlin. Was it ever the, the intention to grow into something so big from those early days? So I wasn't involved from uh, day one, but from what I know from from the people who started it back in 1997, I don't think they had it in mind, but I do think they were planning to start something new in the festival calendar. And I mean, back in those days, the festival calendar wasn't by far as big as it is now. So I guess the possibilities also was uh, quite open, but it wasn't definitely, it definitely wasn't ever a festival that was kind of built by scratch it was kind of an organic thing that kind of grew from year to year into something else i guess it's pretty unusual for a festival nowadays to start as a diy project basically what were those early editions like so again i can only tell from what i heard because i wasn't there which is funny i mean i got involved in 2004 actually but it was a proper i think events like that still happen you know it was a proper one day rave outside of berlin like they still happen i think it was about one and a half hours uh, north of berlin now we are like one and a half hours south of berlin and it was by a lake and it was a 
you know, one stage techno thing with a lot of Berlin local artists. And I think like people like maybe Luke Slater or someone was a special guest, but it's mainly, you know, Ben E. Clock, for example, was, was I think one of the first names and people like Dixon and Ellen Alien, who was of course already very active in Berlin, were playing there. And it was a yeah small open air one day rave with about, I think, 2000 people. What's the connection between the festival and uh, Berlin's Melting Point record store? So the people who founded it were like kind of a family business it was like um, two brothers and sisters and the, I think, brother-in-law. So it was four or five, uh, later five people. One of them running the Melting Point record store and um, the other guys running the Pfefferbank uh, Club, which is now the Bussy here in Berlin. And Pfefferbank back in the days was a really proper house club with, uh, you know, people like Kiki or Phonique and Martini Brothers and Klee as resident DJs. Really a good running club with same bouncer that, that is now the, the main Borkheim bouncer. Yeah, they, they all started it together. And I think the, the name Melt is influenced by the Melting Point record store. So what was the process of, of finding locations back in those days? Because as you said, you became involved in 2003, right? And was this when the first edition happened at Feropolis or was that earlier on? I mean, the, the family I was just talking about, I, I, I already knew them a bit longer than 2003. So we were kind of we had a business relationship, but we also we got friends. So uh, one of the main guys was actually driving past Heropolis, uh, the name of the venue, when he yeah was driving through that, I guess, holidays or something. So he was actually just crossing it and saw these cranes somewhere and he never passed that area before and he saw the cranes. And then, so accidentally, basically, and he, he drove by and, and, and had to look what, what that crazy skyline there is. And then he realized it was a huge uh, construction area and stuff was happening. You know, there was no lake around it like, like these days. It was like a huge hole that was done by the coal mining industry when it was uh, destroying the landscape there. And it was, you know, Ferropolis is a is a Bauhaus University project. You know, it's close to Dessau, and Dessau is like the Bauhaus city, and there's the Bauhaus University and um, for architecture and stuff. And they, um, together with the land, Saxony Anhold, you know, you know, the, the land decided that they will kind of renature that area. So there were like the cranes from back in the days from the mining times, and. Um, the hole around it so the the plan was to renature it and build it into kind of a mix of an open air museum for you know brown coal mining history and also at the same time make it an events arena but when he drove by it was like a big construction site and then he asked the people what's happening here and so they, they they told him and then he was like oh can i can i do a party here so he was basically the first accidentally kind of discovering it and uh, also then the first ever to, to make a party. And the first party that at Melt was, I think, at 1999, if I, if I don't lie, um, there. And it was um, on the spot where now we have the big wheel stage. So it was like the last crane. And behind that crane, one day Melt again there with, I think, 2,000 people. So was it around this time that it became clear that Melt was growing into something more than just... Uh a rave outside of Berlin. When did it become clear that something bigger was was taking place? I think what they started to think was, I mean, there was this time, I think, you know, I remember it as like, when was the year when Seven Nation Army from White, White Stripes came out? Early 2000s. Um, yeah. Early 2000s. It was one of those songs that was played 
those days there was a laugh parade in Berlin. It was huge. And uh, every second truck played Seven Nation Army. And I think one of the thoughts, one to, to, to start to mix, to add other genres than electronic music was, you know, we or they or a lot of people, you know, like electronic music, but they also are influenced by, I don't know, the Cure, uh, you know, indie bands. And, uh, you know, they have a, they heard other music when they were younger, Depeche Mode, whatever. And uh, White Stripes was, Seven Nation Army, I think, was one of these songs that was played on techno parties or on all sorts of parties, and everyone knew that song. So I always take it as an example that that song, I don't know, somehow, I guess, gave the idea to say, oh, why is it, why is it only techno? But in the beginning, I think it was 2001, no, they didn't really mix it. They added a second day and they did a band day and a electro day. And they did that for two days. And then the name Melt, in terms of, you know, everything's melting, started to make proper sense. I wouldn't even say, I, I don't know if it was the idea from day one. I don't, I don't think it was. But I think the people who did it were definitely not only techno in, in, in their in their homes. So they started to book some German indie rock bands and some international acts. I think Zoot Woman and stuff were, you know, some of these dancey bands that, that were you know, around back in the days. Um, they started to do these two days. Always with a bit, you know, limited success. I mean, it was always, it had, it had a good name. It had a bigger name than it was, I think. But I think they never had more than three, four thousand people. And um, also they had a lot of bad luck with the weather. I think back then it was happening in June, I think, and June can be very rainy in Germany. They always managed to put up great shows and it had a great reputation and people were starting talking about it, had a great vibe, the location was amazing. People who came there were like, wow, that's amazing. But again, the location was a construction area, there was no lake, it was, you know, it was totally different than it is now. But um, yeah, 2003, they had to take a break because actually they... I think it's okay to say, yeah, they, they had bad luck with the weather. Uh, there weren't quite enough people, so they, they, they lost money and they got nervous about, oh shit, how, how long can we continue to do this? And um, when they told me that uh, I was working at Intro Magazine, which is a music magazine, and we did also produce, which is also still around, um, uh, the Festival Guide magazine, and my position was basically to do the corporations, the media corporations with festivals. When they cancelled... At the same time, we were thinking to do our own festival. It was supposed to be introducing festival. We still do introducing shows, which is kind of introducing new music, promoting the magazine. So I'd never been to Ferropolis and I'd never been to the festival, but I knew the guys who did it. And not only from setting them advertisers for the festival, but also kind of having a common uh, social network. So, you know, we as magazine then said, why don't we, you know, it's such a great location, the concept, mixing electronic music and uh, bands fits our magazine perfectly. Uh, we are planning to do something. So um, why don't we save Melt and, you know, do it together? So that's what we did in 2004. Hmm. Around that time, you're talking about the, the combination of uh, non-dance music with dance music acts. Were there many other festivals around in the early 2000s or even before that which had been doing this? Or was this sort of something that Melt maybe had a part in helping to popularise? I would say so. I, I, can't, I can't think of any event that ever did it. And there was, uh, there was definitely our USP, what you would say now, you know, like um, it's um, no one else did it. And I think some people also found that a bit, 
weird, but I think overall people found that really interesting. I found it very natural because uh, I was more, I was going to a lot of festivals also because of my job of, of working at this festival magazine. I didn't like all the festivals because you either had the rock festivals, you had a hip hop festival, you had a reggae festival, you had a dark wave festival, you had, you had no festivals who mixed it up at all. And I found that really boring. First thing I did when we said, we got involved in 2004 was uh, let's not do one day rock and one day techno let's let's just mix it completely up let's have the live acts uh, on the main stage and then later on a big dj on the main stage but at the same time dance floors and and completely mix it up and let's just open it up to all sorts of music i mean we added i don't know baby funk some hip-hop i mean it was like the the rule number one was mainly like what we would consider good music you know kind of quality music for people who are into music and that was the rule number one but it didn't really matter if it's uh, what kind of genre it was and uh, so yeah but we were definitely i think maybe even worldwide i think we were the first ones to doing it. and i think we were the only ones doing that for quite a long time interesting what was the transition for you personally like coming from a music media background essentially to moving towards you know working in a festival with a lot of moving parts and a lot of logistics to think about what was that transition like for you exciting but also very painful at, at times i mean i was always kind of also working in events like since i can think i was always working in concert venues and stuff and i always knew that is kind of where i want to go so but at the music magazine my other job was also to do the events that promoted the magazine so we were promoting a lot of shows already in cologne where the magazine those days were uh, was or still is located but i'm i moved to berlin for the festival actually in 2003 but we also already promoted a lot of concerts and shows in Berlin, so Berlin at the old Maria Club mainly. So the booking part of things, which was which is still until now my my key you know position, was more familiar to me. But the the production side of things outside of a indoor venue was was pretty new. So we had you know the guys who did it there already. They were a bit more experienced, but we were all not professionals to be fair. So. Um, in the beginning, we did a lot of miscalculations, uh, you know, had great ideas that turned out to be too expensive. And uh, obviously, yeah, in the beginning, I mean, everyone had to do everything themselves. I mean, I was even, you know, carrying drinks to the back. I mean, it was just four days of not sleeping and with not enough people. I mean, I had, had panic attacks on site. I mean, I was sleeping there for, I don't know, two weeks almost before the festival and Oh my god it was it was a nightmare <laughs> but it was you know when it then happened and when you then realize okay it's not perfect but the people have a good time and there's a good vibe and we we lost money but it was always a great vibe you always kind of had this feeling something special going on here people will talk about it there will be more people next year at some point it will work so there was definitely kind of a belief <clears throat> that it will work some other ones you know some of the founders because you know if you have this financial risk ahead of you and if you see okay now this is going to be the cost and then you had pre-sales and everything and you could just saw okay this is very unlikely we hit the point basically even before the first festival they they pretty much pulled out and and we were the magazine we had some savings not many and i must say the amount we lost looking at it now 
if you talk to professional promoters about it, it's, it's, it's not much, you know. But those times for all of us, it was a, was a huge amount. And so that makes you very nervous. And that, that's a very um, challenging process to, to really go through it and then believe in it and stuff. But then it helps to just do it and see, okay, does it have the potential or not? And we were very convinced that it has the potential. But I also completely understood everyone who said, yeah, there might be the potential, but it's just, uh, I can't, can't deal with those sleepless nights anymore. How many years did it take until the balance sheet started looking like, oh, this is something that's sustainable? I think it was the third year that we got involved. I mean, 2006. I think that was the first time also where we think we broke even. Um, so we didn't lose money and it was um, every year two three thousand people more came so you definitely saw okay there's kind of a word of mouth effect people are excited about it so I think 2006 we had for the first time around seven eight thousand people and it was also the first time that the venue didn't look completely empty I mean like we didn't use most of, like we like it has much more space but we didn't use all the areas so I think 2006 was the first year where it really looked um, busy and stuff and 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 yeah it, it it started to feel big and then yeah every year you know it was every year i don't know two three thousand people more until the point when it reached yeah twenty twenty thousand people so i've read that over half the people that come to melt come from outside germany at what point do you think that started happening that people were coming from outside the country and have heard of this thing and thought that it was a good mm. enough idea to mm travel to come to it definitely the dutch were there at first and i think they were there pretty early there was a good guy who helped us to promote it in the netherlands i think that was the first and only country that we started to promote outside because i think you also dutch are known for traveling to germany or to all over the place and travel to festivals still and they were there very early i think you know 2006 i think we already had i don't know 500 or a thousand dutch people out of 5,000 or 6,000 guests, something like that. And so they continue to to come in big numbers. And then UK came as well. We, we didn't do much promotion, actually, outside of Germany, but it was more the word-of-mouth effect, I guess. But it was also more a natural process. We didn't really, we never really f forced it really hard. It just happened, and suddenly it was 50%. But luckily, it was... Um, it was always the right mix of people, you know, it was always like it actually added to the vibe a lot, I think, ever since. Uh, it wasn't always 50%, I think the beginning was like 25% or so, and the numbers were growing and it kind of stopped at 50% for, for a good while now, which I think is good because, you know, before Melt happened, I used to go to Benny Kassim Festival a lot, but... I couldn't go there because ever since it's on the same weekend, it's still on the same weekend, and that changed into uk festival you know but it was when i was there the first time it was a spanish festival and now if you go it's it's, it's a british festival with some spanish people but that's not the same at melt <laughs> having the electronic and the non-electronic parts together did you get the sense that people would like stick to what they used to and like there'd be people who'd stay at the sleepless four for three days and then there's people who go to the main stages for, for three days or do you think there's more of like a crossover these days of people enjoying both parts of what the festival offers? I, I hope they enjoy both both parts, but I'm sure, I mean, there's, I think there were always a lot of people who maybe even mainly come for the party and for the, for the dance aspect. 
but I think they like to see two or three live acts per day when they know, okay, they know it, they want to see it, great. I would go to the concert in my city, now I can see it at a at a rave or something. But I think earlier, I don't know, 10 years ago, there were also a big amount of people who think potentially mainly came because of the bands. So I think there were kind of two two people who, you know, harmonied pretty well with each other, maybe one half more for the bands and still then being open to go after the concerts to to the sleepless floor, to the to the techno floors and, and dance with their friends who like techno, but maybe those people who wouldn't really go to the clubs in their home cities, but rather to go to the concerts. So I think that mixed up really nice. In the last years, maybe that got a little bit less. I have the feeling it's more, it's, it's a lot about the dance floors. The dance floors are packed all the times. The bands are busy as well, especially the headliners. Uh, but you can see, okay, they're on the dance floors and they're like, oh, I want to see um, whoever Phoenix uh, playing. And then, 10,000 people move over, but the dance floors are still busy, you know, it's uh, the dance floors are never getting empty. So because they don't stop and then the life acts have have changes and stuff. And obviously, I mean, the, the indie, the proper indie scene, I mean, like the bands who had like fantastic shows, you know, like, I don't know, Block Party or The Rapture or Chick 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 or these kind of things, they died out a little bit over the last years. I mean, the, the proper indie indie rock scene, is my feeling got a bit smaller over the last years uh, you know there was a time where there were a lot of bands coming out that are perfect for metal you know block party i think is a great example because it's like it's a rock band but it's such a energetic dancey rock band it's kind of a party rock band you can mm. properly dance to it and they they kind of bring a cool party vibe to everything or the rapture or something you know it's uh, perfect for a concept like melt um, over the last years these kind of bands and music kind of got a bit less, I think. So what do you think has moved into the place of those bands as these kind of like in-between, big stage, not quite dance music, but still like main stage material acts? On the one hand side, the electronic live acts, I don't know, you know, like Disclosure or someone, or Rudimental or these kind of things who, that maybe have a bit of a urban aspect to them also i mean i think in the moment uh what could also work really well at melt is you know some of the new hip-hop i mean not the gangster rap kind of 100 percent hip-hop hip-hop things but the you know the cooler stuff like you know i mean i couldn't get them for this year but you know someone like frank ocean or solange who are unfortunately on this year, not on this year's uh, lineup, just because it didn't work out, um, but they could work perfectly now. Someone like um, Frank Ocean could now be uh, what, what Block Party was, even though it's a much more mellow sound, mm -hmm. but I think people would totally enjoy it. I guess we should maybe talk a little bit more about the Sleepless Four, because that's arguably one of the most well-known aspects of Melt. So is this three days of non-stop dance music there? Does it ever shut down no it, it never it never stops and last year we even added a fourth day i mean it was normally like normally it was starting on saturday morning 7 a.m when the arena like the main festival arena closes at 7 a.m in the morning normally and then so after friday night saturday morning as kind of an after hour floor the sleepless floor started and then it went on until monday morning without a break and last year we decided to do the pre-party on the sleepless floor. Normally it was in a tent and it was with bands last year. We wanted to try an ele like electronic pre-party. So we decided to move it to the sleepless floor just to try it out. And then we said, okay, 
if we open it on Thursday, why why should we close it on Fridays? So, I mean, <laughs> it's just you know. <laughs> so it's there. It's ready by Thursday. It's a great it's a great floor normally. It's like a nice vibe there. So let's just try and see how it works. And uh, in fact, it did work. I mean, it's like it has opened ninety hours, and there's not a single hour that is that is empty. I mean, there are times that are you know a bit less busy. Maybe sometimes we're just two three hundred people there but then in the average i think there are always i don't know at least a thousand sometimes four thousand actually i think we did it since 2004 and it was in cooperation with beat street which was a quite a legendary mm. after hour yeah. in berlin and there was like when you know it, there wasn't a burkhine or there weren't much the sunday or the the, the whole after hour bigger bigger party after our kind of thing wasn't wasn't that big but there was like this beat street thing in berlin just kind of a secret after our party but with big names like ricardo villalobos and richie horton and everyone and so we teamed up with them and said like i'm not sure if it was called sleepless floor i think it was just the beat street after hour and then uh, it, it worked so well so we decided to some point it was called sleepless floor I think in the beginning it was even the Red Bull sleepless floor because it fit together well. <laughs> <laughs> they go hand in hand. <laughs> the bookings are pretty interesting for a festival of melt size. I'm talking about the sleepless floor here and that you guys are really aware of what's going on in that gap between like when someone's still legitimately underground and when they're about to, you know, get media coverage and start playing festivals mm. and things like that. A lot of these artists are playing like the sleepless for the year before they get on a larger circuit and stuff like that. What's behind you guys being aware of these new artists kind of like before the other big yeah. European players are? The early days of the sleepless floor was always also the idea, not only about the after hour, but it was also one idea to, to push or like to feature rather unknown artists from in the beginning, mainly from the area, you know, a lot from, we had a lot of club corporations with Muna Club, for example, which is still around uh, in Thüringen. A lot of those uh, these days, Carter Blau DJs or, you know, these parties that are still around in Berlin, I don't know, these 48-hour parties, a lot of those guys from, I don't know, Dirty Düring and Nick Höppner and, and, and Empro and, and, and Mutlu and, and those people from Berlin and, and, and East Germany were, were playing there. So at some point we made it more international, but the aspect was always, okay, uh, yeah, push someone and give give people a platform also there. Like not, not only kind of really kind of hard party floor in a way, but uh, still also use that opportunity to have that many slots on a floor to to really have a look okay who are the who are the ones uh yeah where you can say in a year's time that they started at the sleepless floor and next year they come back to one of the big dance floors and that is still the 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 idea behind it i would say so yeah i mean it's a mix of we always like to have corporations with with either clubs to say okay bring us the people that you think are cool or that you feature in your club or labels um, and magazines. You know, now we do resident advisor showcase there. Talk to you guys. What's what's hot? Um, Groove magazine did a lot of uh, uh, slots there in the past. It's me booking stuff, but it's also my colleague Gideon who's uh, booking mainly the techno stages, because I'm. I mean, I'm I'm 38 now. I, I used to go out a bit more than I do now. I, I, I can't listen to all the DJs, but Gideon still does. He just really knows what he's doing. You mentioned earlier about how like these kind of indie dance bands have had their time and have moved on and something else has come in its place. I wonder if there's anything else that 
comes to mind for you as as a booker where over the past 14, 15 years or whatever that you've seen these kind of like sub-trends come and go? Just curious if you have mm. like a perspective on any of those things. Yeah, lots of things coming. I mean, we were also even trying out smaller things that never really happened. I mean, for a while I had a fable for global bass music, whatever, influenced by baby funk or, you know, African dance culture. So we tried a lot of, you know, Brazilian artists and then worked together with people like Daniel Haxman or so to man recordings just to find, you know, cool people from, from all over the world. Early dubstep, there was a phase of a lot of dubstep uh, that, that kind of uh, disappeared in the moment a little bit. But, you know, there were years where, you know, people like Roscoe or so like had great shows at Meld. In the moment, I'm not sure if I would book it, but I would book it again if something similar comes up, then... Uh, we started a lot with drum and bass. You know, when we started, there was always a drum and bass element. There wasn't a proper drum and bass floor, but there was uh, the people loved to listen to drum and bass. Last year, I tried it again a little bit. I thought, like, oh, maybe we should bring it back. Didn't work as well as I thought. Mm. But, you know, it's like not the thing in the moment for, at least not for Melt, even though the scene is still there. <laughs> we had a lot of EDM acts before it was even EDM. There was no word about EDM, but for really small fees, we had acts like it's kind of funny to say now but we had kelvin harris djing there we had dead mouse djing without a mask we had nero knife party um, z you know all without a huge show no led walls no confetti no co2 you know but when it started to turn into this which was basically a year or two after we stopped booking it you know but in the year when we when we had it it was worth trying it out and actually worked and it wasn't uncool but you know now of course it would be couldn't book Kevin Harris to melt, but he did play and it was great. Um, but there was a proper cool house set that he played, you know, there wasn't quite EDM. So yeah, we, we saw a lot of trends or genres come and go, I guess. And another thing I'm interested in is whether on your end as a booker and dealing with, um, you know, agents and negotiating fees and stuff like that, has that gotten more difficult over time do you feel like acts which might have been playing for x hundred euro a few years ago are like asking for higher fees and things like this do you, if you have a perspective on that at all it's terrible <laughs> no it's absolutely happening i mean um artists grow i mean it's quite a natural thing that i mean as we are quite good in having people having artists early and for the first time they play for smaller fees because they're not worth fees and then maybe a year after they are really worth a lot of money and um, then you you pay uh, 20 times as much but that's just the natural thing i mean that's that's fair enough of course uh, but overall the development of the fees um, in in um, because of there are so many festivals now mainly and festivals are the marketplace where no matter if bands or dj's make most of their money i mean they just make more money than with club shows normally the fees are higher at festivals now it wasn't always like that you know i think in the 10 15 years ago it wasn't necessarily the case that a festival fee would be higher than a concert or a club fee but now it's naturally higher but it's also because they're yeah they're like so many more territories that have festivals now you know it started kind of in Europe, this whole festival culture. Now the DJs have so many more markets to choose from. I mean, the United States haven't really been there 10 years ago when it comes to 
proper festivals or DJ gigs. Uh, now they could even go to yeah, Russia, India, wherever. It's like every year there's kind of a new market, and the new markets go in very high. They don't know they, they don't know what it costs. They ask the agent, the artist agent, yeah, so how much is it? And then <laughs> they say something, and then they pay it because they think that's the way to do it. So, of course, we do. Um, kind of suffer from it i mean uh, luckily melt is one of those festivals i think where artists generally say it's not this money show it's kind of we we want to play it's fun we might even stay as long as possible i mean also changing a little bit i don't know five ten years ago it was much more common that people hang out the, the whole day there maybe some even stay the whole weekend mm. bring friends uh, that's getting a bit less because you know even the even the smaller djs sometimes play five festivals in one weekend or even more i mean the big djs sometimes play three shows in one day because the festivals go from 10 a.m to yeah 24 hours basically and then the really big ones go into their private jet and then go on to the next show and the promoters have to pay for the private jet so it's uh, it's getting more expensive and i think sometimes it's getting a bit too fast uh, also some some disappointments especially with acts also that you maybe even think as a festival you kind of pushed you had them two three times and then when they start to really kind of sell tickets or so then they ask for money where i sometimes even say you know what fuck off don't come anymore <laughs> <laughs> fair enough do you think this is a symptom of, you're talking about this European festival culture and you've obviously seen it grow into a kind of crazy circuit over the past 10 years or so, but who are these festivals which are able to like, you know, just throw whatever money at an artist versus like a festival from Melt, which started from a from an open air and it like kind of grew naturally. What what is what is like the difference between like who's behind and how these festivals have been funded and stuff like that, and how it's like altering the general festival environment in general? Not so easy to answer, I guess. I mean, it's uh, it's a bit depending on the territory and the market. I don't know. I think it's more the higher fees also come from the new markets, like I just said. I think. The markets and the promoters that started running festivals quite a bit later, they went in higher because they didn't really know what the average fee of an artist is or something. So, yeah, they basically ask how much is it and then they pay what, what they ask for. Also, sometimes they have different... I mean, sometimes they even can. Some of the promoters don't really mind because it's... Uh, their advantage is there are new markets. They have an advantage that they could ask, for example, for higher sponsorship fees than we can in Germany, for example. I mean, we do work with sponsors. We need them to cover especially those artist costs, to be honest, also, um, and keep the ticket prices as, as low as possible, even though it's not even that low. But the advantage of those new markets is, you know, they have also no sponsorship history, so they can also go in really high with the sponsors and say mm. it costs this and that. 
our disadvantage is like we had sponsors 10 years ago and they're like oh why do we have to pay every year more you know sometimes like if i compare the fees that we get to fees what people in spain or especially the really new market south america brazil or something get it's crazy it's like it's a huge difference you know some festivals are funded by the region where they are happening for mm. example there are lots of festivals when i see okay they do have a 20,000 capacity and then i look at their lineups and i was like and then i look at the ticket price and I'm like this, this can't be real you know it's like how how do they do this mm. but if you then really look into it they they have some some reasons why they can do it whether it's like they get a lot of money from the city or the the, the mayor is involved or they have very low costs with the location or whatever it's like a lot of reasons for how you can how you can afford to pay the big fees or there's a big corporation that says um, we just want to get involved into this and we want to start a new festival and we go in really aggressive and we are okay to invest i don't know uh, two million loss in the first year to just uh, build the festival up you know like we build it up organically you know like every year it grew but these days people want to promote a festival or corporations want to promote a festival and then they want to go from zero to 20,000 to 50,000 within two years. And then they are also willing to invest a lot of money in the first year. Maybe someone has the money. Do you think in this environment, it's more difficult for a festival to grow in the way that Melt has in this kind of like steady organic way than it was, say, 15 years ago? I think it's harder today. It's not impossible if you have the right idea or hit the right scene or push the right buttons. I mean, uh, even in Germany, there's so many new festivals, you know, that, that, that have a completely different approach that don't really do promotion, don't have sponsors, uh, don't really publish their lineup, but maybe don't really have the ambition to, to be a proper music festival. Maybe it's more about the, the experience and there is music and there are DJs playing, but people don't really care who's playing. That's more of these concept festivals or so, you know, and some of them are really successful, really fast and, and really organic without big corporations behind them. So I think that's totally possible. Mm. But I think you have to have a more special idea now because everything's already there. I mean, and now it's a European and a worldwide market. You know, people are traveling, the, the airfares are cheap. So it's not about if you go, if you live in Germany, it's not necessarily about do I go to a festival close to Berlin or do I go to a festival in Amsterdam or do I go to a festival in Czech Republic uh, or in Brazil. It's uh, everything's possible. I would do the same. Mm. This is kind of connected to what what you mentioned before, but a really surprising amount of festivals, at least from my perspective as a, a non-European person, are funded by like cultural agencies and, and cities and stuff like that. But was that the case also like 10, 20 years ago? Was that something new where these state-affiliated bodies are starting to become interested in these like electronic music events mm. and stuff like that? I think it's rather new because... Now they take cultural or even party tourism serious. I think 10 years ago, even in Berlin or so, the politics or the politicians, the authorities didn't really appreciate it as a tourism factor. I think now there are enough numbers and enough studies that every mayor or every tourism person working for some region knows events and culture pulls people and people are mobile, they travel. Yeah, they totally know and see that. And I think there's a much bigger awareness and a much bigger 
open mind to help promoters who seem to do something good for the region or whatever. I mean, we never were lucky enough to benefit from that, even though we are in a region that that benefits a lot from from our festival. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a dead, it's a, it's a dead dead area, but it's a beautiful area. Like it's actually a tourist tourism area, um, but it's not very known, especially not for young people. I mean, it's maybe older people who go to Lutherstadt Wittenberg to know the history about uh, Martin Luther or go to a Bauhaus for the architecture or something. But no young person would naturally go to that area in the dark east of Germany. So I think we, we, we help the area a lot to be more popular or to be more known, but we never got a cent for it. And they don't have the cent, to be fair. <laughs> Interesting. So this area where melt happens... You guys have been quite consistent in um, pushing agendas to do with diversity and representation over the years in, in various forms. How has that played out in the area where the festival happens? Yeah, good good question, actually, because it's not, not the biggest match. Uh, we don't have that many people from the area, which, which is um, which is mainly. Uh, I mean, there are not so many young people living in that area. It's like I think the young people in that area move to bigger cities quite early unless they they stay there. But yeah, it's not the you know it's not the area the area known for its uh, most open, uh, multicultural, gay friendly whatsoever vibe. I mean, it's actually close. It's in the region where the right-wing party AFD last year gained the highest results in all Germany, I think, with fucking 35%, something really terrible. So it's uh, it's not quite the vibe that the area kind of embraces what, what we do there, but it's it's great. Luckily, no one ever protests against us or something, but we always thought, even though we don't have that many visitors from the area... And because we are who we are and we are coming, you know, from the music scene and from the club scene, I mean, I'm gay myself, uh, you know, it's like it was very, very clear from the very beginning that we make it very clear. If you have the wrong thinking in our thinking, then you're not welcome here, you know. And um, we didn't scream it out, but it was always on our tickets. It was always on our website. Uh, from year one to say, you know, everyone is welcome as long as um, you tolerate everyone who's there. And if you don't, then you will be kicked out, or we we, we don't don't even let you in. And also, we like very early. We I think in the very first years, when 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 the Pfefferbank Club that was related to the festival, you know, there was this Labrador Bar, one of the really early, really cool kind of gay parties. They had a floor there, you know, with a kind of rather queer lineup. Um, and you know, every year, like we had a. I mean, of course, I mean people like Scissor Sisters or Peaches or like the, the, the queer artists played, but it was not just to book them. It was always also to have the diversity. And I think general diversity also when it comes to gender equality and stuff, we really are very aware of it. I think this, this year, I think we have around 35% female artists or something, which is which we didn't always have, but it also kind of the, the, the awareness, you know, we, we are people, I think, who are open for the discussions and uh, from scratch we would like to do it right and if we can, we even force it a little bit because we, we, we support it and we find it right. And then, but we don't shout it out too often. I think, you know, we don't shout it out loud. Hey, we are the, we are the good guys. I think it's just like, but from what we do, we would like to acknowledge the people. Yeah, 
everyone's welcome here. Yeah, I think we also have a pretty high um, percentage of, of gay visitors, which is also, I think, quite unusual for for festivals outside the big cities. And um, I find that a very positive thing. And I'm happy that people seem to recognize that it's a safe place for them. Given that we are in this festival landscape now where you know people can fly wherever they want really easily and there's so many festivals going on, what do you think it is about Melt that has kept it kind of consistently in this category that a lot of festivals wished wish they had this kind of like value associated with them, but Melt's got that, you know what I mean? It's a difficult question, but what what do you think contributed to that? Good question. I don't know. Maybe, maybe because we didn't force it too much or so. I mean, like it's not that often people ask me what's the target group of Melt, and then I'm like, I don't know. It's just the people who are there. <laughs> it's like I, I wasn't. We didn't do this festival to say these are the people that we want to have. This is how we will achieve that. So there was not there was not a master plan or something. Maybe people acknowledge that also that it doesn't feel so created or so. It rather feels uh, a bit natural. And I think also, yeah, we didn't. T I mean, yeah, we always. I did always. You know, we're not like like Berghain or so that never really talks about us. Or like, of course, you can. Like, we even have TV broadcastings at the festival, and we sh we we love to show pictures because it looks fine and. People should see it to say, yeah, they want to come. It's not really that we have a myth or something. It's not really that we didn't talk about it, but I hope it's just a, a authenticity. There is not a concept how we did it. That's the answer to the question. 